Welcome to the Gutsy Ones. My name is Sandeep Rao. I'm an engineer, a serial entrepreneur, and an advocate for the mental well-being of founders and their team. Each episode will showcase the fascinating story of people who have made gutsy decisions. We will look at how it impacted them and how they made their way back. Dear listeners, the first guest on this podcast is a very special person, Mr. Jeremy Davis, a person who perhaps needs no introduction. But for the records, here is a quick overview. Jeremy has over 50 years of strategy and management consulting expertise. He was an early member of the Boston Consulting Group and set up their West Coast US office. He was subsequently appointed as the managing partner of BCG's Paris office. Jeremy then served as the Dean of the Australian Graduate School of Management for 15 years and was made an Emeritus Professor at the University of New South Wales. Jeremy has since served on many boards such as Singapore Power, Champ Ventures, Transurban Group, the Australian Stock Exchange, and many more. In 2008, Jeremy was recognized for his long-standing service to tertiary education and commerce with the award of a member of the Order of Australia. I was lucky to be his student during my MBA. That was back in 2005. I'm fortunate and thankful that Jeremy has been a mentor and an advisor to me for over 17 years. It's my absolute honor to have him on this podcast. This is me living my dream. Jeremy, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Sandy. Jeremy, uh, I'm just thrilled to have you on this podcast. We've been talking about this for a while. I appreciate you taking the time. I want to go back right at the beginning of your career and the journey with BCG, if you will. Could you give us an, an overview of what was it like and what was the time? When did you join BCG? I joined in the middle of 1970. Uh-huh. Uh, I'd been invited out to, uh, uh, from San Francisco to visit Boston, where I met many of the early staff. Right. And uh, Bruce Henderson, the founder, who I got to know. And I found it a, a, the firm had really interesting, quite novel perspectives on strategy, right. which it was carving out a new territory, I think, in terms of management consulting at the time. And I found that exciting. So I joined the firm. We went then from perhaps, I don't know, 30 people to 50. So it was still a young firm. One of the things that I think the managing partners, and particularly Bruce, realized at the time was that they wouldn't have credibility with major American corporations unless they had a European presence. Right. So that was also a time when they were recruiting young British, French, and German nationals mm-hmm. from good American business schools to be the startup teams to go into Europe. And, so, and I joined the startup team mm-hmm. that went in France. Right. Jeremy, sorry, when did BCG started in? 63. 63, and you joined in? 70. And you said there were roughly about 50? 50. And so in, in, in a way, you joined a scale-up? <laughs> in, in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so were you based out of US at the beginning? Initially, 18 months in Boston. Okay. Then um, there was a hiccup in the firm's plans for Europe because Bill Bain, who had been the designated officer to create the Paris office uh-huh. and spoke French and had been educated in France, partly, 
broke away and set up his own trip, Bain and Company. Bain and Company. So a small group of us, five of us in total, um, led improbably by a Yorkshireman, <laughs> uh, founded the Parasols. And I spent 18 months there. Right. And then to my surprise, was asked, did I want to take on the challenge of starting the first office outside Boston in the US, i.e. an office on the West Coast. Right. It was a risky decision in some ways, but not in others. Um, it was because the partner, apart from Bain, the, which had unsettled the firm, um, the partner who'd been expected to open the West Coast office mm -hmm. refused to do so. <laughs> now, I was told um, by others that he declined to do so because what he wanted was a sort of almost a guaranteed split of lead allocation wow. of new clients, uh -huh. and that anything west of the Mississippi um, had to be allocated to the West Coast office. Right. And the Boston offices would not, could not, I think, agree to that. So you had a firm that didn't have a strong West Coast presence. Uh -huh. We had a couple of two or three clients, at least on the West Coast then. But w would you be willing to start up an office without a large client base and with no guarantees on the lead allocation yes. when most of your marketing is done out of Boston and your key conferences are held in Boston? Yeah. So that was the risky part of it. From my point of view, it was perhaps not as risky as it had, would have been for him. And that was because I'd come to the conclusion that I couldn't I couldn't achieve my dreams by staying in Paris right? Um, uh -huh. because I'm simply not a good enough linguist. <laughs> and okay. to be a really good strategy consultant, I mm -hmm. think you need to have a remarkable, uh, a very high level of language competence. Right. I've made a presentation in French and lost a couple of kilos in the process, but, <laughs> uh, but I don't have the fine ear that's needed for good consulting. So for me, Staying in, in France, well, yeah, it would be no fine. We were enjoying life in Paris. But it was a challenge to go back to the West Coast because I'd been at the Stanford Business School. Right. I like the area very much. Um, and to take on the challenge of actually creating an office, um, even if it didn't have a geographic carve out, I thought was worth taking on. And and so this is 1972? 73. 73. And what would you say was the 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 nature of the consulting market back then? The standout consulting firm that absolutely dominated the landscape was McKinsey. Mm -hmm. And I attribute that to the fact that through the 60s, they had recognized before anybody that firm growth and was leading to a need to fundamentally change organization structures. Mm. And they worked with many of the world's major firms to shift them from a functional structure to a divisional structure. Right. And so a lot of it was organization design work mm. and all of the implementation that follows from that. Mm. Uh, and th I think that was where Bruce Henderson had one of his insights because he was intuitively a tremendous strategist. Mm. So there was a gap, if you like, in the market. Right. And there was an appetite, an interesting appetite on the part of senior executives to experiment with a new firm that had different ways, quite radically different ways, mm -hmm. of thinking about 
competition. You land in San Francisco, you open the door. So this is like the garage days of BCG's office yeah. on the West Coast. Um, and did you have any clients that you could leverage or did you have to we start had, cold? We had a couple. Uh-huh. Um, I had done some work with a, one of the big pulp and paper companies, Kratz Elevac, right. uh, before I went to Paris. But we didn't have a strong client base by any means. So I simply took the decision that what we had to do mm-hmm. was I looked at the skills of the three of us um, and I said, well, one is an electrical engineer from MIT. He gets what was then the very beginnings of Silicon Valley. Right. Um, and so he went after clients like Memorex, Ampex, Fairchild Semiconductor. Mm-hmm. I think that's where Intel came from um, yes. and so on. Um, so that was his job, uh, and he made inroads there. It mm. was not easy, but he did well. And the second was um, Californian born and bred, and really knew and loved the resource industries. Mm. So he got particularly forest products, which is critical on the West Coast. Sure. Um, and also, I think, did some work in oil, and I also did some work in the oil industry down mm. in Texas. But I said, there's a problem. Um, there isn't, there aren't all that many manufacturing companies on the West Coast. Yeah, right. And yes. you have VCG's origins, yeah. and it's, you know, all of its conceptual base were founded in manufacturing companies. Mm. And that was the bulk of its client group. So I tried early on to get engagements with a couple of banks mm. and discovered I, I didn't even have the language to talk to them. The jargon and the, uh, yeah. and the terms, yes. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't sustain a conversation. Mm. And I was up against a very good McKinsey partner. Wow. Um, I, I know him. Um, <laughs> I had enormous respect for him. So scratching my head, I was fortunate. We, Bruce Henderson helped me develop a, a, a client with Transamerica. Right, which is a fascinating piece of American history. It's all Congress decided they didn't like bank holding companies. Uh-huh. So this was everything that Bank of America used to own that they weren't allowed to own anymore. Right. It was all bundled together in one conglomerate. Right. It included life insurance, property and casualty insurance, uh, small consumer loans, uh, the master franchise budget rent-a-car, United Artists from Charlie Chapman days, a manufacturing company that made centrifugal compressors. Um, oh, you name it, it was superficial. Um, but I developed a very good relationship with the chairman, chief executive, and progressively we worked in almost every division. Right. Um, and that began, it, I mean, what it did was begin to develop an understanding about how strategy in financial institutions is not totally different. Mm. Um, but there's a lot more emphasis on segmentation and not on pure scale. Right. Scale effects uh, across most of those businesses were not as significant, but segmentation and segment focus was crucial. Right. And then, because I still couldn't crack banking, and banking was it's so critical, um, and particularly at that point in time on the West Coast, uh, because the 70s were a period of stagflation. Right, um, yes. And of so banks were central to everybody's thinking. 
um, and they were running into the, I mean, it was unfamiliar territory for all of them mm. as well. And the London office, which ran the conferences, as Boston did, as we did, um, for senior executives, had a lead from South Africa. Right. And I put that one down as the second sort of gutsy decision. Right. Because if you think about it, firstly, you're managing partner of an office, which is going through a stressful time mm. because it's a recession in the US, feeding all those hungry mouths. <laughs> um, I learned a language in the life insurance industry, which was interesting. A branch manager said to me one day, you can always tell whether agents are going to make it or not. Right. When they come back into the office after they've made a sales call, they either walk down the middle of the corridor or they almost slink down the side <laughs> and they develop call reluctance. Right. Which I found a powerful idea that you develop call reluctance if you get turned down too often. Right. So am I going to chance my arm, you know, in a sense, be absent sometimes from San Francisco mm -hmm. where I'm a titular head in order to chase a dream, uh, which is trying to land a bank. In South Africa. In South Africa. And how many years? In the middle of the real hostility to apartheid. Right. And so this is 1975. I guess two years in, you're, you're now. Yeah. Okay. And that would be, be a very difficult um, decision. There were several hurdles, but I guess for me it was the dream. I mean, I, I just saw it as critical to the, to the development of the firm. Mm -hmm and the survival and prosperity of the West Coast office. Wow. So it was worth the gamble. Um, and the way that, it, but it also had risks for the firm as well as for me personally. Mm -hmm. um, the risk to the firm was reputation. Right. Would you, you know, would many people turn their back on you for accepting work in South Africa? So it went to the officer group, and by then I was an officer, so there were 14 of us, I think. Um, and it was finally agreed that we could work in South Africa, but nobody could be required to go. That you could ask somebody if they wanted to go there, mm -hmm. but you could not draft anybody. Right. Um, and that was fine with me. I, uh, I accepted that. In fact, I supported that very strongly. Sure. One of my uh, younger people in San Francisco happened to have had a South African background mm. and he was keen to go and he developed an opportunity with their leading life insurance company. Right. And I decided to pursue this bank. Went down there with a, a case manager from Boston and discovered the client enormously impressed me. He was from one of the leading Afrikaans families. Mm-hmm but he hooked his legs over the side of his armchair one day and said to me, Jeremy, the blacks are going to run this country. Mm -hmm. When they do run this country, I want them to have a first-rate banking system. Wow. So he was basically violating the law and certainly the, all of the preferred policies of the board by training South Africans to be not just tellers, but to do credit analysis hmm. and similar critical banking skills. Um, so his ethics I greatly admired and it made it easy to work yes. for him as a client. Yes. He said his biggest problems 
was stopping the uh, the Afrikaners <laughs> and the English from beating up on each other because the cultures of Cape Town and Johannesburg were so separate. Right. Which that is a separate issue. But it turned out that we we then recruited two more members of the team. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't stay on the ground, but the three of them stayed on the ground for the better part of five months. I commuted, if that's the right expression. It used to take 27 hours. <laughs> um, you flew Pan Am to Isla de Sol and then into Kinshasa, where you couldn't get off the plane because they wouldn't admit that they were refueling aircraft going into South Africa. Yeah. Uh, so it was interesting times. But the crucial thing that we learned was that segmentation is everything. Right. And that <clears throat> sophisticated data analysis is the only way that you can hope to correct segmentation in complex industries like that, and particularly in information-based industries. So the high point, I think, of the study was the team, along with about 50 bank officers, went into the various branches, many of which weren't automated, Right. Um, the, the urban ones were, but not all the country ones, and took every 87th customer. <laughs> it was a stratified random sample right. yes. uh, to work out how many transactions per month do you do, what's the size of the transaction, okay. what's the size of the balance. Right. Because it was typical worldwide of banking at the time, including Australia, mm -hmm. that transactions were being given away free. Right. Um, the competition was non-price competition right. um, by providing branches and bank services. And unwinding that is what the Australian banking industry has been doing for about the last 20 years. Right. <laughs> so this is all on the back of your experience with Transamerica. Uh, you mm -hmm. have um, now found a new market. You're looking to, in a way, develop a product market fit. You've got your learnings, you've got your experience, and you are uh, pretty much like uh, a founder these days trying to um, make sure that what you have is, is what the market needs. And then you found this South African client, mm -hmm. and then you took a, a gamble, as you said. How did that impact you personally? And what, what was going through your mind as you, you took that decision? Because you did mention that it was, it, it would, it was affecting you personally. Well, it meant there were extended times away from my wife, mm -hmm. um, and that had a cost. Yes, there are. There were certainly aspects of life in South Africa, even though I spent most of my time in Johannesburg mm. in the head office, um, which was stressful. You could you could sense the tension, mm. um, and any white face was watched. Mm. by the staff in the hotel and uh, by a waiter in a restaurant and wow. you had to work out how to interact effectively. Um, but mostly it was just the sheer risk-taking, the intellectual challenge of not knowing mm. whether having performed this stratified random sample, mm. what, what would we come up with? Right. Now, as it turned out, we came up with patent. I mean, you could absolutely crystal clear layout the segment structure oh. and prove that one bank had figured it out uh -huh. and was deliberately gearing all of its strategies which branches it opened which ones it shrank right um which customers it went after how it pitched its advertising 
was always the random insight into whether money was to be made in bank, retail banking retail at bank. that point in time. Right. And the focus was on retail and not on so much on corporate banking. Right. So then I did something that I suspect most founders don't do, mm-hmm. which was I turned the IP over to the rest of the firm because I was asked <laughs> to go back and help out and run the Paris office. Right. And and what helped you to cope with this during you know during your time either in South Africa or while you were going through this decision journey? What what's your coping mechanism to deal with stress, anxiety, and the rest? I can call it stupidity if you like. No. <laughs> um, no, I think it was simply the the sense that there had to be a detectable, understandable uh, logic to the way banks compete and what makes some more profitable than others. Mm. And you could see some were more profitable than others. Right. Um, and most of that was, a lot of that was around the mix in the portfolio as to whether people, predominantly retail banks, predominantly urban banks or rural banks, you know, to what extent they were engaged in trading, um, and so on and so forth, but, but to, to actually drive it to the point where you could give operational advice to a chief executive about this is what you need to do at mm. this point in time with your bank because this is what your competitors are doing and this is what the market is. Um, I think it was more of a, just a belief that we had the, we had the intellect and we had the firepower and we had the sheer bloody-mindedness and uh, yeah, the fear of failure. Failure does occur to you. Um, yes. But, um, but I learned a long time ago. I had a very good friend who one I, I made the mistake of saying to him one day, I feel like a failure. He said, you need to grow up. You have to draw a distinction between I have failed and I am a failure. Right. Um, and I have never forgotten that distinction. That's fascinating. And that's, that's helped you to obviously understand that you, these are just stepping stones in, in life and you pick yourself up and then you move on. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeremy, any other uh, insights from your time at BCG, looking at your clients um, or other experiences where people have taken gutsy decisions and what, what, what has helped them come out of it? I can think of a number. Um, you also remember the times that they didn't. <laughs> yes. Um, I think part of successful consulting, finally, <clears throat> is that the client believes it was their idea. Right. Um, and that's hard for your own ego um, <laughs> to let them own an idea which had never occurred to them before. But um, in several cases, we, we said to clients, you have high hopes for this business, but actually you have already lost the game. Mm. Um, and you need, yes, you can pass the parcel to the next CEO right. um, you know, or the next division manager, but you're not doing anybody a favor. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of the great industrial conglomerates, um, we found a business which had been cash flow negative for 30 years. Wow. Um, and they were famous for it. They had their brand all over it. Right. Uh, it was one of their consumer-facing businesses. But they couldn't admit that they had actually been beaten by their arch competitor. Right. 
for 30 years and they wouldn't let go. Wow. Um, we finally persuaded them that you may have failed, but you're not a failure. Right. <laughs> we discovered, I, I think I only did one assignment in Australia when I was working for BCG. Um, I'd been doing some work for a resource company which had an Australian subsidiary mm. and came down mostly to, uh, um, to deal with them. But the corporate planner from one of Australia's industrial conglomerates had mm -hmm. been to one of our conferences and he invited us to come to London and talk to them. They've been taken over and broken up since, so I'll refer to them as ACI, right. the old glass bottle manufacturer. Uh -huh. And we found that they had no real systematic way of thinking about what they were doing in their businesses. So each one was being run by its general manager. Right. Um, with like no this. overarching right. view about what makes you successful in business or anything else. And we stumbled across one in which I'd been working with a major packaging producer in the US. Mm. And they had the same equipment in Australia. Mm. Um, you make cardboard boxes <laughs> and you use, uh, in those days, a Mitsubishi corrugating converter. Right which is about a $30 million piece of equipment. And the Americans run it 24-7 mm. for about 360 days a year. Yeah. And Australia was running it, or this company and its competitors were all running uh, eight hours a day, five days a week, for 42 weeks of the year or 48 weeks of the year. And you go, that's an unbelievably expensive way to you in a capital-intensive business. What's yes. going on here? Yes. And of course, it was in the early 70s. It was the trade, uh, the Whitlam government had just brought down the Trade Practices mm -hmm. Act, um, but hadn't yet applied it to this particular industry. Mm. And we looked at it and said, do you realise that the way you're competing is entirely on non-price? Right. You're doing it with multiple colours, very mm. short runs, very fast delivery. Your clients accept that, but if you look at what the Americans do, they do it for about a third of your price. Mm. Um, but they won't give you the colours. Mm -hmm. They won't give you delivery tomorrow night. Right. Um, you better put your order in a month in advance and so yeah. on. But when you lose your trade practices application, there will be an almighty price war in this industry. Mm. You need to sell before. Right. Get out if you can find somebody who doesn't understand what the future looks like. They didn't. They didn't. <laughs> wow. So that was episode one with Jeremy Davis. We focused on his time at BCG, in particular him setting up the office on the US West Coast and the gutsy decisions he made at BCG. The next episode continues with Jeremy Davis and we look at his life after BCG and his work with different companies in the role as a chairman, advisor, director. Stay tuned. <laughs>